Welcome back to Podcast Recovery, everyone. We're your hosts, David O. And Eric V. Today we are joined by our special guest, Bill. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome, man. Great. Uh, where are you from, Bill? I'm actually from, uh, well, the closest place would be Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada. And uh, I'm right at the mouth of uh, Lake Erie. Nice. And uh, I can look over and I can see the Buffalo, New York skyline. Cool. All right. And uh, when were you first introduced to recovery? Well, yeah, well, I'll tell you, when I was actually diagnosed with schizophrenia in 1987, and uh, I was basically, I was hospitalized six different times. I lived in two different group homes. I had a suicide attempt. I spent five years on the couch dealing with a deep, deep depression. And uh, I was very, very ill. Hmm. And so how long uh, would you say you've been recovering from your disorder? Yeah. So basically my life started to turn around at around uh, 1992, 1993 mm-hmm. area. And um, yeah, so and, and then it took me, so I was really in a, a, a bad spot for a good five years. Mm-hmm. And then I started to turn around. My turning point happened in 1993 when I basically I had an idea to start a mental health magazine. And I took some uh, business courses and things like that. And I started a magazine that actually incorporated uh, in 1994, March of 1994. And then I did that for 23 years. And uh, I can, I'm considered myself as retired now. Um, I shut my business down uh, uh, in 2016, just when everything was going digital and that, but we were print with the magazine, and I decided instead of going to a new format that I would retire, and I focus now as a hobby. I'm selling my book. All right. Well, congratulations on that, and with all that out of the way, I'm going to turn it over to you to share your story with us, so take it away. Sure. Okay, so... My main point that I'd like to get across today is that there is life after mental illness. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm no stranger, uh, I'm no stranger to mental illness as I grew up, uh, I grew up with uh, a mother who was uh, bipolar, but at the time when I was a kid, I'm I'm actually 57 years old now, but when I was a kid, like uh, seven, eight years old, nine, uh, my time was spent uh, going back and forth to the hospital with my father visiting my mother. My mother was bipolar back then, but back then they called it manic depressive. Mm-hmm. And um, I can remember my mom getting sick all the time and being in a hospital all the time. And so my my childhood, uh, uh, so, you know, my, my memories of my childhood were really around mental illness as well. Um, and in those days, it was really, really bad. I mean, um, there wasn't the good medications that uh, they have out now, but my, my mom didn't stabilize on lithium. I guess uh, lithium was kind of a miracle drug. But, uh, but she, was, she was in and out of hospital all the time, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I saw that. I saw that. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, just because of the heredity, mental illness kind of runs in families. Yeah. And uh, just like any other disease, like, there's like cancer runs in families, heart disease runs in families. Diabetes runs in families, uh, heart disease runs in families, and unfortunately, 
mental illness ran in my family. But mm. when I was growing up, I never dreamed that I would come down with a mental illness. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really, really uh, shocking when I did. Well, basically what happened is that what's what's the thing is there's three legs to it. It's one, that it's genetic, and two, it's biochemical, mm-hmm. and three, there's a structure involved. And what happened with me is obviously I had the genetics of mental illness running my family. Mm-hmm. But what happened is that uh, I uh, got a girl pregnant, and uh, I, I didn't, uh, I suppressed that. I didn't tell anybody about that. Mm. And what happened is that uh, I was looking for forgiveness, and because of all that pressure of holding it in, I was looking for forgiveness, and I started to dive into theology, and I started to uh, read the Bible and different things like that. Mm. And what, what happened was that basically... Um, I started to have what was known as delusions and hallucinations and things like that, not knowing at the time what it was. Mm-hmm. And so what, the first signs that I had of mental illness is that I'd be waking up at, and this is when I'm 24 years old, I'd be waking up when I was, uh, you know, 2, 3 in the morning, I couldn't sleep, and I'd start reading scripture, and I'd actually see words float off the page and expand and contract, and... Um, that was called an illusion. It was illusion because something was there, but it uh, was changing. Yeah. And I saw faces in the wall. Yeah. My, 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 I saw faces in the wall, uh, things coming up, and I, I became paranoid and all kinds of stuff. I don't know if you've seen the movie A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe played John Nash. Yeah. And Ron Howard produced that yeah. movie, A Beautiful Mind. And mine was, my experience was very, very similar. Like when Russell Crowe was in the Pentagon and he saw, was looking at all the code on the wall. Mm-hmm. And I see the words that float off the wall and expand and, and crack. And, and uh, I was seeing things just like that. And uh, my, my life uh, really became very uh, paranoid and I was suspicious. And I went into a full-blown psychosis. Basically, that means a, a split from reality. And that's what actually schizophrenia means. A lot of times people think that schizophrenia is is like a personality disorder or Mr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde or, mm-hmm. or that. But no, the word actually, schizophrenia actually means split from reality or being out of reality or in a psychosis. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of times with schizophrenia, usually it's between the ages of, say, 15 and 24. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I was fortunate that it hit me when I was 24 and I had a past, like I, I worked before and I had relationships. And so I, 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 I my socializing was, was, you know, put together. And uh, so I was fortunate that way because people who get hit a little bit later uh, fare better than other people who get hit, say, when they're 15 or they're 16 because they're just learning their social skills and that. Mm-hmm. And uh, schizophrenia is, is very common. Schizophrenia basically... Um, uh, is one out of every hundred people in uh, in a lifetime will have uh, a diagnosis of schizophrenia. So it's a very wow. common, common illness, uh, but it's a very, uh, very uh, difficult illness. And um, so, yeah, so really what happened with me is I became paranoid and coincidences would happen. And what ended up happening is that I had a, an acute break. What that means is that schizophrenia can even have like a slow onset of it, and that's mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, parents will you know, see their kids in the basement, but they, they, they won't come out, and 
They're kind of laying in bed all the time, and they've apparently aged or something. That lasts a long time. Mm-hmm. But in my case, I had what's known as acute schizophrenia, and that means that uh, that means that uh, my symptoms came upon me really, really quickly within a six-month period. So I was very delusional for about six months until I actually got hospitalized. And the, and the reason I got hospitalized is that I was walking naked down the street and uh, and uh, That'll do it. cars and everything like that. Hmm. And the police picked me up and uh, took me to the flight center sort of thing. And that was my first introduction to being uh, in, into a psych ward. Hmm. Hmm. So, so basically, so basically, on the psych ward, I was on there. Yeah, I was on there for quite a time, quite a while, and I was very delusional. And they tried me on different medication, and and uh, you know, I, I could remember walking the halls, and always had the sensation that I had to go to the washroom, but I couldn't go. Um, the TV was speaking to me. Uh, I was getting cold out of different things, numbers, and, and everything. And I was very, very ill. And I was in the psych ward, and uh, they started me on medication. And, uh, you know, at, at first it made me very, very zombie-like. And mm-hmm. then they tried another medication and everything like that. But really what happened is that once I was on a medication that worked for me, my I, I was kind of being out of reality Pretty soon, the TV wasn't talking to me anymore, and the mm-hmm. radio, I wasn't getting code out of the radio, and uh, I was really, really, uh, I, my, my delusions went away, and my voices went away, my paranoia. Went, so literally, being on medication, I totally crossed the line and was back into reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'd think, you'd think that I would say that that's great, Bill, that's great, you're back into reality. But my reality consisted of that. I had lost my house, I had lost my job, I had lost my friends, I had lost my financial security, and I was just another one out of 100 people with this illness known as schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And I thought my life was over, I, I thought my life was over, and I had no hope, and and uh, then, then for the next five years of that, I basically was in a deep depression, and uh, I was in a deep depression, and... Um, on the couch for five five years, I had a suicide attempt, and uh, I used to keep on thinking and saying, "If things didn't change, they'll stay the same. If things don't change, they'll stay the same." And I hated my same. And I thought mm. that five years was going to turn into seven years, and seven years was going to turn into nine years, and nine years into fifteen years, and that scared the heck out of me. And uh, um, so, what happened is, is my turning point. Um, once I got stable on, on medication, I did go off. 80% of people who are on medication and get feeling better will go off their medication. And I was one of the ones that went off of my medication. And I relapsed and I was back into a psychosis again. And uh, and um, back into a psychosis. And, and then they put me on an injectable, uh, injectable medication. And then that brought me back into reality. And I've been dealing with that. I've been having that medication for the last 30 years. But before I go into my turning point, I just want to I just want to let you know why uh, mental illness is different than physical illness. A lot of times people will say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's just another illness. Like, 
diabetes or heart disease or something like that. And, and the truth is, is that it's not the same as a physical illness. And the reason is for that is that mental illness, mental illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar, what happens is that in your brain, um, it, it affects your brain. So, for mm-hmm. example, if I fell down, if I fell down and my bone was sticking out of my arm and my arm was bleeding, my brain would say, "Bill, you have a broken arm. You got to get to the hospital and get that taken care of." But with mental illness, the the brain itself doesn't know that it's ill. It doesn't know that it's broken, and so that's why mental illness and especially schizophrenia and bipolar are cruel illnesses. Is because it deals with your brain that doesn't realize that it's sick. Mm. And uh, basically why mental illness is so frustrating is because when we're in a psychosis or when we're out of reality, we have no logic with us. We, we don't know anything about logic. Yeah. Where the people who are trying to help us, they're all about logic. They're in the world of logic, and we're in the world of non-logic, and logic and non-logic doesn't mix. And that's yeah. what makes the frustration part of it of mental illness and especially schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once I got stable, I was, and, and I should say that with schizophrenia, you have what's known as positive symptoms and negative symptoms. And, and that may sound good, positive symptoms, but it's not. Basically, positive symptoms are symptoms that are added to your personality that shouldn't be there. For example, if you're paranoid, if you hear voices, if you hallucinate, if you have illusions and delusions, these things are added to your personality and they shouldn't be there, so they're called positive symptoms. Okay. As well as schizophrenia, you can have what's known as deficit or negative symptoms. And these are things that are lacking from you that you should have, but you don't. And those things are, you could have a lack of joy, uh, a lack of, uh, uh, a lack of, you have a bluntness, yeah, the depression can set in. Mm-hmm. You're emotionally bland. Uh, you're very lethargic, uh, and you know. So these are the negative symptoms or deficit symptoms, and they really play havoc with your life. And that's where the depression comes in. So I was five years on the couch dealing with depression, and I had a suicide attempt. But I was scared to death that I was gonna, um, I, I wasn't gonna recover or whatever. Until so my turning point, what happened? is that I remember what a grade seven teacher said to me. She said that one time, she said, Bill, if you don't learn how to uh, learn how to write properly in life, you'll never amount to anything. Mm-hmm. And what she meant about my writing was my penmanship. I had very, very poor penmanship. Mm-hmm. And so I said to myself, I'm gonna prove to somebody that I can do something. And so what I did is I phoned the 40 Literacy Foundation and I said, listen, I know how to read and I know how to write and that, but I want to improve my penmanship. Can you send somebody over? So that started uh, when Martha Mason, Martha Mason came over and she was a volunteer for the Literacy Foundation. And she was also the executive director of the Big Brothers and Big Sisters. And she was also going to school for social work at Niagara College. Mm-hmm. And Martha would come over once a week and we'd do penmanship exercises. And really, Martha learned more about schizophrenia from me than I did penmanship from her. But Martha took an interest in me, and she said, Billy, she said, you know what? Uh, she said, I know you're not doing much, which was an understatement. And uh, she said, I go to school at night college. She said, why don't you sign up for a course, and I'll drive you, and uh, you take a course. 
I thought, oh my God, take a course. How can I do that? And, you know, that means I got to wash my hair and brush my teeth and shave. All these things that are difficult to do with negative symptoms. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I did, I mean, uh, I phoned up, uh, I, I did sign up for a photography course at the college and I went to school with Martha. And the only reason I had no friends, you know, I had no friends and I had no friends of the opposite sex. And Martha was a woman and just to be in the, in the presence of a woman, I guess, was enough motivation. But anyway, um, hmm. Martha took me to school and I did the, I did the photo work. I did the darkroom stuff. I went on field trips and did pictures, and I, and I did enjoy, enjoy it. Um, I just went through the motions. I still had that emotional blandness, mm-hmm. but I went through the motions, and I did take the course. Then the next thing I know is that Martha, she's saying, you know, Bill, she says, uh, uh, she phones me up, and she says, Bill, I'm the seventh chairperson of the Portery Beavers, Cubs, and Scouts. And she said, we need a treasurer. How would you like to be our treasurer? I thought, oh my God, yeah, sure. That means I got to wash my hair and brush my teeth and shave. All these things that are difficult to do with negative symptoms. But I sort of said, okay, Martha, I'll come to your stupid meeting. Mm-hmm. And that was a turning point. That was a turning point because that's when I met Martha's husband. I met her children. I met Peter, who eventually I started playing racquetball and squash with. I started helping out with campouts and Apple Day and things like that, club cars. And what that really did is it gave me uh, it gave me a whole new set of friends who accepted me for who I was and not necessarily what I had. Mm. So now the thing is that I have I have friends, but all my friends are working, and that seemed to be the next step is getting back to work. Uh, but that wasn't so easy uh, getting back to work because I worked right many many different jobs and. And things just didn't work out for one reason or another. They, they didn't work out. Uh, but one day, um, I was in the library. where I got interested in town council meetings that were held in the library. And one day, uh, I was there early, and I found a book called 101 Ways How to Start a Business or No Capital. And I said, that's me. I have no capital. That's money. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the book, there was a scenario there where before VCRs were invented, this woman watched three separate television stations. She watched the soap operas, and she ended up doing a newsletter on what was happening with the, in the soap operas and selling it to her working friends. Well, I read that, in, and that was in 1993, and I read that, and a light bulb came on, and I said, I probably can't do a newsletter on the soap operas, but I could probably do something on schizophrenia. Mm. And that was an idea that I started in 1993. And I took some college courses for how to start a small business. I took some finance courses. And basically, um, I, in 1994, I incorporated my company, Magpie Media, Inc., and I started in the magazine, and I did that for the next 23 years. Mm. Wow. So that's so that's my story, and uh, the, and now so basically what I do during that time I've written a book, and now my uh, I, I'm I'm retired, but my hobby is uh, uh, selling my book. Hmm. All right. Oh, we definitely. Yeah. I, uh, I when I was when I was in business when I was uh, uh, when I had my make I, I spoke all over uh, North America as a keynote speaker for many many conferences and. Uh, I traveled throughout uh, the throughout North America, and I uh, I was overseas for a bit as well. 
Nice. All right. Well, we definitely have some questions for you. I will, uh, for this episode, defer to Eric first, so he may go first. Yeah. All right. Um, great story. Um, and the first thing I want to ask, I have a few questions. I've suffered with mental health issues um, a lot in the past, and uh, right now I guess I have a fairly all right grip on it. Um, the the part about the meds is interesting because I know for, for different people – um, mm-hmm. I've seen friends get off their meds. Luckily, I'm not a person who needs to necessarily be prescribed or on medication at all times, but I have friends who, who do. Mm-hmm. And seeing that, mm-hmm. um, you know, what happens when they get off their meds and seeing just like the mood change and that shift, um, because they thought they were better and they didn't need them anymore. So I guess, you know, you were talking right. about that injectable, inje- the injectable medication that you take. Now, what... What motivates you to continue your medication and what blockades do you put in place so that you don't fall into the trap of thinking I'm better now and I don't need this? Yeah, that, that absolutely. And, and one of the reasons uh, uh, is that I have a very good insight into my illness uh, because, you know, I grew up with my mom having mental illness and, and when I went off my meds before I relapsed and, and so I know that I have that memory. I can remember vividly how I acted when I was on medication and when I wasn't. And I was one of those eighty percent as well that that went off. That got feeling good, and I needed to know: Do I really need this medication? Do I really have this disease? And I went off on medication because I needed to know, and I relapsed. So now I know I have. I need my medication. What makes me keep on with my medication? is that I have a high quality of life. I'm, I'm very high functioning and I enjoy my life and I don't want to screw it up. I know that my life, uh, I, my definition of recovery is when you wouldn't want to be anyone else other than who you are today. And uh, that's how I feel. How I like my life. I, I, I have a good life. And I, I know that I would jeopardize that if I went off my medication. And so that, I mean, I have three children uh, I am divorced, but I do have three children, and, uh, you know, like I say, I have a good quality of life, and uh, I don't want to ruin that. Mm. All right. Um, sort of piggybacking off something uh, you said in there in your response, like you were talking about knowing a lot about uh, your illness. How important was that? for you to really educate yourself on your own disorder and really understanding um, what what you were up against? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, education is very important. Um, um, I mean, I, I, group therapy was, was a very good uh, uh, thing. I, I, early on in my illness, uh, I, I was going to group therapy. Uh, for a while, I didn't, well, I didn't go because of my negative symptoms, you know, the, the shaving and hygiene and sleeping in and just mm-hmm. laying around. I had no motivation to go to group therapy. But once I got a little bit better and started going to group therapy, it was actually seeing other people and, and making friends at group therapy and, and learning about mental illness and that. And I found that it was uh, a very big help for me to go to group therapy and uh, just have friends because... I got to tell you, when I was ill, all your friends drop away. All your friends you had in high school or uh, college, they all drop away. And uh, you have to make new friends again and kind of get put the pieces of your 
life back together again. And, uh, and I, I think what happened for me, um, for me, I, I, because I got hit when I was 24 years old with this illness, like I say, I worked in the past. I, I owned my own house at one time. Uh, I, I had good jobs. And uh, all of a sudden, that's all gone. And I wanted that back. I had a good work ethic, and I wanted that back. And that's why I'm fortunate, because I was hit when I was 24, and that's why people, when they're 15 or 16, and they get hit, it's kind of hard, because their socialization hasn't taken place in them. You know, they haven't gone through the dating thing. They really haven't had a first or second job. And, um, yeah, so it's, so it's all, all about your environment, and, uh, you know, you, you yeah, so that that's I was fortunate because I said later, and I wanted I wanted my quality of life back. Mm. All right, what else do you got, Eric? Um, so you mentioned that you had three children, and you know you were talking about how this is a hereditary disease um, as far as mental illness goes. Now, are you worried at all that your children will be afflicted with mental illness? Um, and if so, what? sort of um, plan do you have in place to kind of deal with that, not only for your children's sake, but also your own, you know, mental health? Like, how, how would you handle that situation as well? Yeah, sure. So so let me just first give you some statistics on, 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 on heredity there. So if, if one parent has uh, schizophrenia, there's a 10% chance of the, uh, uh, of, the person, of, your, of your offspring to have mental illness. If both parents have have uh, schizophrenia, then it's a 50% chance. If neither parent has schizophrenia, then it's a 1 in a 100 chance, just like everything else. So my my one son, remember I told you I, I, that pressure I kept uh, because I got a girl pregnant. So that my son now, that the one that, uh, uh, you know, I was actually on the psych ward on, on one floor and he was being born uh, on the floor below. But he's now 32, and he lives in Halifax, and he works for, uh, he's an operations manager for a call center, Concentric. And uh, so we have a, a good relationship. There's not the bond, there's not the bond that I have with, as, with my other two kids. So my other two kids, I have Dwight, uh, uh, who's, who's 17, and uh, he's in grade 12. And my daughter, uh, Anna Faith, she's, uh, she just turned 15. And uh, I did, uh, Hannah did approach me one time not too long ago saying that she felt she wanted to see somebody because uh, she felt depressed. And so I got her to a, uh, I got her early to a, a, a psychologist and just made sure that everything was okay because you can't be too careful. And I think that all growing up with my kids, they've known what I've done. Uh, they've known I always traveled and went speaking. They've read my books. So we have no secrets in the family, and uh, we have very open. It's a very educational, you know, very good. We, we talk about things. We, we talk about church on the way home from church, and when we're when I pick them up from school, sometimes we talk about what's going on. So we're a very open family and a close family, and there are no taboo subjects. And so my kids can feel open about talking about me and, and about mental illness. Um, so, um, do I worry about my kids? Uh, I say, no, uh, I don't. And when I used to speak a lot and people would say, 
you know what, they would say, uh, you know, mental illness, friends of my family or something like that, should I have kids? And I used to tell them, well, you know what, first of all, if you put off having kids because you think your kids are going to be mentally ill, then you're worrying about all kinds of stuff. Because if you have a child and they do have mental illness, by the time they're teenagers or get, get diagnosed, um, they may be great medications or make great leaps and bounds uh, in, in, in science and, and in treatment and, and in, in recovery. So that's one thing. And then could you imagine... Um, if you didn't, and then if you didn't have kids because of that, and there came a cure, you kick yourself and say, "Oh, there's a cure now. Why didn't I have kids?" So you can't live life in fear, uh, you know. And, and I don't live my life in, in fear. I mean, when I was younger, uh, I, I traveled throughout Southeast Asia, and I was a commercial diver. I worked for a company called DTAC, and. Uh, uh, I went to Singapore and I worked on the oil rigs, and that that was um, when I was 19 years old. So I've always had adventure in me, and uh, and, and I tried to do that with my children. Like my one daughter is going to be doing an exchange. Uh, we're going to have somebody from France come over here, and then my daughter will go to France for three months. And and uh, uh, you know, so uh, you 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 can't let your license here. Hmm. I like Perfect. That. Um. So, uh, what like social difficulties did have you faced uh, due to your illness? Like, have you had any um, pushback from people, and like, how did you deal with that? Oh, absolutely, yeah, and you know what, and and that's a big part. Uh, Socializing is a very big part of of life. I mean, when I was very ill, there, I mean, I would just basically follow my mother around and. And whenever they, they went shopping, I went shopping with them and things like that. But I knew I needed to create a spark. And so what I did is I, I, I really forced myself. I, I would look at the community newspaper all the time and I'd think about events. And I and I would mark my, my calendar with events and make myself go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, uh, the Legion band was playing at the band show. I would go. If somebody was showing a travel log of their vacation, I would go. Uh, you know, if they're starting a new organization, save the snails or whatever, you know, <laughs> I would go. But uh, I knew I, and I would put things on the calendar and I'd always have things to look forward to. Mm. And that's one of the, that's something that's very important to have things to look forward to. I got involved with my church and so I made a lot of friends. Um, but certain things like, you know, socializing is a difficult part because one of the things is when, when you do have a mental illness and you do go to a social function, one of the first three questions that anybody ever asks you is, oh, so what do you do? And it's not very, uh, it's not really, uh, it's not very nice to say, oh, well, you know, I don't do much. I get up at 11 o'clock in the morning and I may go and have, you know, 10 cups of coffee and, <laughs> and I'll go have a nap and maybe I'll watch some TV. You know, that's not a very neat thing to say about that. Yeah. So you understand why people don't want to socialize when 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 they're down. But what I've done is uh, I, I would I would force myself is that I would always treat things like you know conversationalists. It's hard to have a conversation. But what I would do when I met people, I would kind of in my own mind think that I'm a, I'm a television host, and I would ask them questions as if I was interviewing them. And then that way, that's how I learned to uh, to communicate 
uh, and, and get over that uh, fear of crowds and fear of, uh, you know, people not accepting me for who I was. And another thing that I think that is very important, a lot of times people with mental illness is that they, um, they don't have a lot of friends. They, it, it's hard for them to have friends. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that people don't have friends is because I believe that you need to be honest, you need to be tr- uh, transparent, and you also need to uh, be able to express your vulnerability. Mm. And that's how you make friends. When you're honest with people and when you're transparent with people and when you open up your life and you're, tr- and you're kind of uh, you know, transparent with your life and you share things that you're vulnerable about, that's how friendships make you make them and last and they're good friendships. And, you know, and you got to really remember, too, is that if you have one or two friends, that's great. You, you, that, that, that's great if you have one or two really, really close friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, life is really like on Facebook. We may have, you know, 200 friends or whatever, but really they're not really friends. So if you can, in this life, have a couple good friends, you're doing okay. Yeah. All right. Back to you, Eric. Okay. So let's see. Um so let's talk about depression and, you know, one of the things that, um, I kind of, that's something I struggled with, uh, for a long time was, uh, being depressed. And one of the things, um, I'd like to understand how, how you go about doing this is how do you keep yourself kind of in check, kind of similar to that first question about medication, but more for depression on this one, um, where, how do you notice when you're starting to fall back into kind of um, a negative way of thinking and into, a you know, a, let's say a darker mindset. And how do you recognize sure. that depression? And then what actions do you take to try and get yourself out of that frame of mind and not let yourself walk down that sure, path? Sure, that's good. That, that, yeah, that, that's a great question. First of all, let me tell you that depression was the hardest thing that I have ever had to fight. And nobody really knows how dark it is when you're deeply, deeply depressed. And uh, I got to tell you that um, um, when you are feeling depressed, you have such a hopelessness, you have such a low self-esteem and a self, self-worth, and you also see just, you just see black in front of you, and life seems very, very meaningless. It seems very meaningless. Like when I was in my depression, I didn't, uh, I didn't listen to music. I love music, but I couldn't listen to music when I was depressed. Uh, I couldn't. I, I'm usually, uh, I'm kind of a joker. I was always kind of a joker uh, kind of guy, and I, I couldn't. I lost my sense of humor when I was in a deep depression. But I got to tell you that when when you are getting out of your depression, you know that it's a good sign when you like your music back again, and when you find your sense of humor back again, it's very important. But let me tell you how I kind of stay in check. How I stay in check, my philosophy, is that I keep, I try to keep my life as stress-free as possible, and I also try to uh, uh, live as simply as possible. So I don't put pressure, a lot of pressure on me. And uh, so, for example... Um, and I also, I also put things on the calendar that I look forward to, things that I always have to do. 
And so those are the things that, that I think are practical to try to have less stress in your life, to make your life simple, and to uh, have things on the calendar to look forward to. Plus, I, 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 I don't find myself um, um, really bored or anything because, you know, I do try to market my book uh, part-time. Uh, I do a bit of writing. I'm working on a second book. Um, but that's different than mental illness. It's, a, it's more of a, a theological book. But I do that. I have a few good friends from the church and everything that I go out with coffee with, or they invite me out. So it's in moderation, and it's having that right balance. With my kids, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're home and everything when, when they're at school, but then they come home. So I have a, you know, stress-free, uh, just the amount of rights. So you can't be stress-free. You have to balance stress. But I have a stress, a simple life, and things to look forward to. And I think that's my secret. I love the um, having something on the calendar to look forward to. Yeah. Like it's it's so simple, mm-hmm. but it's something that kind of, you know, if you can look at that and be like, if I can just make it to this moment, then I know that, you know, I'll have a moment of happiness and a sense of relief. And, you know, just that little tiny thing can give you the motivation to stay in the right state of mind. And I think that's just a, it's great. Mm-hmm. All right, I got a uh, question yeah. for you. So, uh, what have you done to uh, reach out and help others that are afflicted with schizophrenia, and um, how has it helped you? Yeah, so absolutely. So basically, you know, uh, when I had my magazine, it was uh, called uh, S and Z Magazine, and uh, I would uh, there was a, a quarterly magazine, and uh, so that was was a very good. Uh, avenue to, to help people as far as, you know, um, basically uh, I look at it as kind of a support group on, on paper. So mm-hmm. that's kind of a, a good thing there that for that. Plus when I, I would always bring education to, uh, uh, to events. Uh, I, I think that I would bring education and hope and uh, understanding to uh, mental illness. And I think one of the things how I was very effective of doing that I have, uh, people have told me that I have a gift of making things simple. So, for example, I'll give you an example. Um, I'll give you two, an exa- uh, two examples. So, people, I would, people would say, well, what is it like to hear voices? How would you hear voices? And I would say, well, pretend you're driving your car and you're going up north for a vacation in the, in the wilderness and you have the radio on and you're driving, you're driving, and all of a sudden, the further away you get from that radio tower, uh, the radio signal gets lower and lower, and other stations jump over it. You hear voices from other stations overlapping Mm -hmm. the station that you're listening to. That's an example of hearing voices. Another thing, for example, a lot of people with mental illness, and it happens with schizophrenia sometimes, the, the truth is that when somebody's in a psychosis, or psychotic, you do not know what's going on in their mind. You know, so really, they you don't know what's going on in their mind. Yeah. So people who do things criminally, like the uh, non uh, non non criminally responsible mm-hmm. NCR non criminally responsible. So people in the general public think, oh, how can that person claim non you know non criminally responsible and everything like that? And I'll say, well. Let's look at this example. I said, 
What if they made a law? Say they made a law in in in, in the law that said nobody can swear in church. If if somebody swears in church, it's a five year sentence. Right away, you're going to jail for five years if you swear in church. So all of a sudden, there's one Sunday at church, and and somebody all of a sudden starts effing this and effing that and effing that, right? Mm-hmm. And they go, oh, this person's swearing. They need to go to jail. It's the law. But what if that person had Tourette syndrome and mm. couldn't help from swearing? Yep. See, that's an analogy of non-criminally responsible. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So, so my, so, uh, so I, I use analogies, and then I, when I used to speak, I, I used, to, I, I have a gift of making complicated uh, things simple. Mm-hmm. Seems simple. I think I have the exact other gift. I have the ability to take simple things and make them complicated. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like a lot of times when we about medication, you're talking about medication and things like that. Well, the truth is, is that, uh, you know what? Um, I truly believe that if it's not broken, don't fix it. Kind of yeah. Well, I'm on an I'm on a, I'm on an old medication. I, my injection is a little bit of an antidepressant with a little bit uh, an antipsychotic in it, and it's an old medication. But if it works for me, I'm stable. Mm-hmm. Many times people would say, "Well, I'm on to a newer medication or something like that." And I say, "No, if it's not broken, don't fix it because it's very delicate." Yeah. All right. Uh, do I get one more question before the Twitter question? Yes. Okay. You can, you can have one more question. Yay! Thank you, Eric. All right. Um. So. What's your opinion? Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> there we go. All right. What's your opinion on uh, the cultural stigma towards mental illness, and do you think it's changing? Well, it's definitely an awareness. There's more awareness uh, of, of mental illness uh, uh, all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, um, we hear, but we hear about it all the time. Uh, educating. I mean, for example, here in Canada. Um, Bell telephone bell. They uh, basically um, bell um, has a let's talk about a campaign, and uh, there's more money going into mental illness and and everything like that. But uh, but I think that what happens is that is that and that's a good thing. But it's such a difficult subject. Is that it's a hard thing to help. It's a hard thing. To find solutions to. I mean, I think the homeless population are grow is growing. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the suicide rates are are up. They're they're increasing, and uh, so uh, so mm-hmm. there is more public awareness, but people are realizing there's not a lot of solutions. Yeah. We see the results of mental illness, but it's hard to come up with solutions. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, I think it's time for our Twitter question. All right. So today's Twitter question is from Sarah Bell, or at Sarah B 906-81770. And I've never worked in the behavioral health field, but I know David did for Mm -hmm. a moment. And I know that, um, Bill, with your magazine, you have. But the question is, um, and this is for everyone, how do you personally inspire others in the behavioral health field? Um, and that, that is the question. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure with your magazine, you have a lot of experience on that, Bill. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, so. I think if I understand the question is, uh, you know, what, what uh, if you're frontline working in the mental health field, uh, how, how can you be an asset instead of a liability? And I think uh, I, th- I think one of the things is that we definitely can't judge people. We shouldn't judge judge people mm-hmm. at all, uh, because you know what? Our shoes. We've only walked in our own shoes. We've never really walked in somebody else's shoes. And I think a lot of times too that people just want to have compassion on people. And uh, it, I mean, you know, you you can't fix people. You can't make people do what they don't want to do, but you can still be kind uh, and uh, not judge and uh, just be compassionate. And I think that, um, and I think what other people, I think in front line, uh, people who are working front line, I think it's very, very important that we get to know a person, not only at their present state, but what they did in the past and what some of their strengths are, their strengths and weaknesses and their gifts and their talents. And once we learn about people, what their gifts and their talents are, and we can encourage them and we can get people to hone them and develop them, uh, I think that's really important. And I think so if you're a frontline worker, I think you've got to look for the gifts and the talents of people and help them to encourage to develop them and to grow them and to, and to hone them. And, uh, uh, because everybody has gifts and everybody has, has, has different talents and, uh, everybody has something to offer. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, from my experience, uh, I, I've done more work with, um, addicts and alcoholics than people w- with, um, mental illness. But what I've found in my experience uh, through treatment is that m- most people, and this like this includes uh, people in like non-professionals and professionals, uh, a lot of people in the recovery community, whether you are a professional or non-professional, a lot of them want to do a lot of talking and telling you what you have to do and where you have to go and when you have to do things. And just like you said, um, you can't make anybody do anything. Like there was nothing that I could say to anybody I ever worked with or came across in recovery. There's not much I could ever say that's going to stop them from doing whatever they're going to do. And, like, that's been, like, me and my sponsor's philosophy for a long time. Like, he can't control what I'm going to do at all. So he, he it, it relieves a level, a level of stress off of him. So the way I, um, as, as uh, our, Twitter, our Twitter question said, like, how, how my uh, inspiration, I, I tend to be the listener. Like I want to listen to people and like you said, like get to know them and actually like beyond any statistic or uh, what what they're in for or them being just your hourly uh, wage as a psychiatrist. There's a, It's a human being and whether it's mental illness, whether it's alcoholism, whether it's overeating, gambling, like whatever it is, it, it's a – person that's suffering and needs help and like you you just 
have to give them that opportunity to be vulnerable and and let you into their world. It's not about forcing your way into their world. It's about it. And for a bad analogy, it, it's kind of like a, a scared um, animal, like a, a street dog mm-hmm. or a street cat. You got to you have to have to allow them to come to you. You can't just run up to a dog on the street and expect not to get bit. You know what I mean? So, like, that dog has to come mm-hmm. to you and not the other way around. Like, it, the dog's going to do what it's going to do. And when people are scared and hurt and uh, in pain, uh, it, it, it can be disastrous. But when you approach it with compassion and understanding and actually just give them an ear um, as another human being, I, it, I feel it tends to work out a lot better that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Yeah, I think uh, I think we just need to, uh, you know, have a few ground rules and try to be kind to people. Uh, don't judge people, um, and do more, like you said, do more listening than talking. And you know what? We can't try to fix people. Uh, uh, nobody can any. Nobody can ever fix anybody else. But I think what it is is that if somebody has goals and dreams and desires that maybe we can come around them and, and try to help them a little bit to uh, to better their quality of life. And I think we have to look at things and say, uh, when we meet people and we, when we're involved in people's friends, say, not that how can I make their life better, but how can I encourage them to want a better quality of life? Mm. Yeah. And you know what, and that, that's the bottom, the bottom line, is that when you're dealing with mental illness or when you're dealing with an illness like schizophrenia, you really lose your life. And people want your life back. Mm. And it's sort of like, I can remember being in high school and everything like that, where people would say, you know what? Oh, get a life. Uh, you know, go get a life. Uh, or get a life. You yeah. know? And that's exactly, that's exactly what's missing. That most people with mental illness, that we ought to have a life. And we have to get our life back. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Did you have uh, anything to throw into there, Eric? Um, I mean, I guess, you, you know, can, I... Huh? You can say no. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I would just like to say, David, that, to be um, you know, anyone who works in a behavioral health field, that is a very demanding emotional job. Mm-hmm. And, um, man, it, you know... There's high highs, and I can imagine there's even lower lows. And I appreciate all the people who have helped me in the behavioral health field get mm-hmm. through my depression, my addictions, um, or not get through, but help me get to a better place with the afflictions that I've had over the course of my life. Um, because for every success story, there is someone who doesn't make it. And that toll, I can only imagine, weighs heavy on anyone who works in that field. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, finding that inspiration to keep doing it, even when there is a failure, you know, that's that's the hard part. But for every failure, hopefully there's a success. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we would. Yeah, so uh, Eric, uh, just uh, just to let you know, so uh, people if they wish they could uh, 
download the first chapter of my book, The Cry Dry Tear, Bill McPhee's Journey of Hope and Recovery with Schizophrenia, if you go to BillMcPhee.ca and McPhee is M-A-C-P-H-E-E, so BillMcPhee.ca, and they can uh, download the first chapter of my book off my website. That's wonderful. Man, you already beat me to it. I was and just where I was, is I there anywhere else say. we can find you besides um your website? Do you have like a tw- any yeah, social I'm, media? I'm I'm, I'm I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at uh, at Bill McPhee 62. Um, and I also I, I should also let you know that um, I have a Facebook uh, a Facebook page that's called The Prize Right Here. And I also do a um, I have a Facebook group called um, helping parents of mentally ill children mm-hmm. and what I do is I broadcast live I broadcast live on Facebook um, every Sunday night at 9 o'clock Eastern Time alright cool awesome well before before we uh, do our little close out here I would like to say um, personally we've had a few of our neighbors to the north on this podcast and it, it has been a joy every single time, and uh, you Canadians are just spectacular. I just got to say that. Well, thank you. Yeah. and like, well, thank you. <laughs> not to say that our, our American guests and our other international uh, guests aren't amazing as well, because like, I've loved ev- each and every one of our guests, especially our, our British ones. Their accents just endear them to my heart. But yeah, you love Canada, love our international guests. You guys are always fantastic, um, bearing with us in the distance and everything. And you, you did a great job tonight. So we would like to thank our guest, uh, Bill, for doing a great job and joining us tonight. Yay! All right. <laughs> Here at Podcast Recovery, we are aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts. Accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction. We work to bring the message of recovery to every addict wherever and whenever it is needed. We believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable, practical, and at the touch of a button. Every addict deserves to hear a message of hope, and Podcast Recovery is here to provide it. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us tonight or today. Whenever you're listening, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. But most importantly, stay safe and stay clean.